0: Our scripture on this day is taken from Genesis, the first chapter. We'll skip around a bit, but we still hope we can get a sense of the rhythm and the poetry. So listen for God's living word. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was a formless void, and darkness covered the face of the deep, while a wind from God swept over the face of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness God called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day.
1: And God said, let there be a dome in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And it was so. God called the dome sky, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the sky be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the earth put forth vegetation, and it was so, and God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day.
0: And God said, let there be lights in the dome of the sky to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the dome of the sky to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters bring forth swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the dome of the sky. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day.
1: And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures of every kind, cattle and creeping things and wild animals of the earth of every kind. And it was so. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let us make humankind in our image according to our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the wild animals of the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth." So God created humankind in God's image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, God created them, and it was so. God saw everything that God had made, and indeed, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day.
0: Thus the heavens and the earth were finished in all their multitude. And on the seventh day, God finished the work that God had done. And God rested on the seventh day from all the work that God had done. So God blessed the seventh day and hallowed it, because on it God rested from all the work that God had done in creation. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to to God. God. I believe in God, maker of heaven and earth. Today is the third Sunday in our intentional communal walk through one of the most ancient and ecumenical creeds of the Christian tradition, the Apostles' Creed. And I imagine that if our children had stayed in the sanctuary for this part of the service and listened to the text, especially if they're in elementary school, had we asked them if they had any questions about it, they might have asked things like, What day were the dinosaurs created? And did they die before the humans were created just a few days later? In another few years, were we to ask them again, perhaps their questions will have become the ones the late biblical scholar Sib Towner asked in his commentary on Genesis. How did God go about the work of creation? Was there a big bang? How did life begin on Earth? Did God call on an asteroid laden with amino acids or even living cells from Mars or some other corner of the universe? Is there life elsewhere in the cosmos as well? I know those questions because I began to ask them in the seventh grade. I was sitting in earth science class when I heard for the first time about this moment we call the Big Bang, and all of a sudden, in my 12-year-old mind, the claims of my faith, the words I had digested from this part of Genesis since before I could remember, seemed to start colliding with all of this new-to-me science that I was learning. I was perplexed, to say the least. And I imagine I'm not the only one who had a moment like that. Perhaps you did. Perhaps you still do. Yet those questions about the how creation came into being are never going to be answered in this poetry from Genesis. Now, you'll notice that I use the term poetry very intentionally for that is what this text is really designed to do. It's designed to be multivalent, symbolic, an act of art. As a colleague has written, Genesis 1 is not a physics lesson, and it was written before science had awakened in the mind of humanity. Genesis 1 is a bold proclamation of who is the author of the universe, the force that makes it all happen, nurturing the astonishing explosion of life on this planet and the artistry of light in the farthest reaches of space. The world is not here by chance. The universe has a purpose. That's basically what my preacher father told me the day I came home from earth science and interrogated him on what I perceived as a major battle between the biblical text and the scientific text. Shannon, he replied, the Bible's not a scientific textbook. wasn't written to tell us the how things happened, but to tell us the why and the who beyond and behind it all. Again, Towner, Genesis is a theological work in narrative form. It comes to render to us a picture of the author of our existence at work. I believe in God, maker of heaven and earth. In our Presbyterian Reformed theological tradition, when we make that claim, we are not making the claim that we are literal creationists. A literal creationist, usually a pretty loud voice in our marketplace of ideas, adheres to a literal interpretation of Genesis 1. They disregard the science of evolution and the study of geology and archaeology and believe that God brought all the earth and all the rest into being in seven distinct days. And if you ever challenge someone who adheres to that worldview, inevitably you will be told, at least I have been, that clearly you do not take the scriptures as seriously as they do. The Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. That was a popular bumper sticker in my own old hometown of Waco, Texas. The late author Rachel Held Evans might have also had that kind of a bumper sticker on her car when she grew up. She grew up in Tennessee as a part of the fundamentalist Christian tradition. But as she became a young adult, she experienced her own earth science existential moments, out of which she realized she needed to find a way of being faithful that felt more expansive and made more room for mystery. And as she looked back on why that theological shift was such a critical one for her to make, she wrote, the problem with fundamentalism is that it can't adapt to change. When you count each one of your beliefs as essential, change is never an option. When change is never an option, you have to hope that the world stays exactly as it is so as not to mess with your view of it. For fundamentalist, literal creationists, Christianity sits perpetually on the precipice of doom. One scientific discovery or cultural shift or difficult theological question away from extinction. They are so fearful of losing their grip on faith, she concluded, they have a tendency to squeeze the life right out of it." End quote." I would add to her statement that part of what we see and hear, not just in the witness of Genesis 1, but Throughout the witness of Scripture, is that change, creation, recreation, new creation is an important part of all the life that the one we call maker of heaven and earth has breathed into being. So, when we call God the maker of heaven and earth, we are claiming that God is a God of creative power, creative activity, creator of all that is seen and unseen. For again, the gift of science is that it can help us understand more deeply the how of our material world. And the gift of our faith can help us realize more profoundly the why of it all, the why of all of us in the first place. Furthermore, the gift of our scripture through the power of God's wildly creative spirit can help us catch these glimpses of the one behind and beyond it all. So what does Genesis 1 help us glimpse about the maker of heaven and earth? One insight comes from a Jewish friend of this congregation, the Rabbi Yehiel Pupko. Rabbi Pupko is a Judaic scholar at the Jewish Federation of Metropolitan Chicago, and once we were in a conversation about this particular text. He pointed out to me that from his Orthodox Jewish perspective, what I was calling the first creation narrative—there are two, by the way— was actually not written as a story about how God brought creation into being, how God was maker of heaven and earth. Rather, the beginning of creation, the actual unfolding of God's creating something out of nothing, is too awesome, too full of the sacred mystery to be contained in a story in our words, Pupko told me. From his perspective— The poetry we read from Genesis 1 is actually a story of God bringing harmony out of chaos. And that's why the seventh day, the Sabbath, was proclaimed as holy and a day of rest, the rabbi concluded. It was the first day without chaos. On the seventh day, God's creation of harmony was finally complete. Rabbi Pupko's insights help us to understand that one phrase we could mentally add to maker of heaven and earth is the phrase, creator of harmony out of chaos. Another thing we glimpse in this poetry about our maker of heaven and earth is that the Holy One does all of it through invitation. Did you hear that in the text? Then God said, let there be light. Let there be a dome in the midst of the waters. Let the waters be gathered together and let dry land appear. I could keep going, but I imagine you hear the repetition. Let, let, let. Each time God creates, God uses invitational language. And that tells us so much about the one we call maker of heaven and earth. God could have simply worked independently. And in a way that was domineering, that was about power over. But that's not how the one we call God does it. The way this poetic text reads, we see this picture of a creator who chooses both to initiate the creative process as well as a maker of heaven and earth who chooses to invite that which is created into the ongoing work of creation. Let the earth... Put forth vegetation. Let the waters bring forth swarms of living creatures. There is this interesting dance, this interesting partnership going on. Yet God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, could have gone about the work of creation differently, working on or over. But according to the poetry of this scripture, God chooses always to work with and in Genesis 1 offers us a picture of God as maker of heaven and earth who purposefully chooses not to act alone, but only in relationship, even in relationship with us, something we would have heard had we kept reading in this text. This biblical text gives us this strange glimpse of a God who chooses divine vulnerability by involving those who are finite, those who are creature, into the whole process. But that's not all. Do you know what else we discover about the maker of heaven and earth in this text? We discover that not only is the work of creation done through invitation, but it has delight at its very core. Delight is inscribed in the very character of creation. We read how, beginning with the very first act of God's creative activity, that the maker of heaven and earth assesses what has just taken place and declares, it was good day after day, it was good, and after day six, it was very good. Yet in Hebrew, it was good does not indicate a mere kind of dispassionate evaluation. Rather, in Hebrew, the phrase it was good is meant to signal pleasure and joy. It's a phrase meant to convey delight. The kind of delight we feel, maybe not this morning, but as the days tend to grow longer again. The kind of delight we feel when we get to welcome new babies into the family of faith. The kind of delight we feel as the energy in the sanctuary and online continues to grow. The kind of delight we will feel over seeing all the different kinds of people with all their diverse colors and cultures and languages as they fill the sidewalks and the beaches here in Chicago once the first moment warmth takes hold. That kind of delight that fills our spirit in these wondrous moments is more similar to what it was good is meant to connote. And according to this story, God, the maker of heaven and earth, feels that way each day of this creation narrative, not just when God creates humanity. It was good, our text says. God delighted we can interpret. Seminary professor Bill Greenway claims that this language tells us that as God brings each creature into being, God is immediately awakened To being seized by love for what God just made. Seized by love for every creature, every created thing. God simply delights in all of it. What might happen, do you think, if every time we professed, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, we remembered these three glimpses? that God is the one who creates harmony out of chaos, that God chooses to do God's work in a way that's invitational and vulnerable, inviting even us and all of creation to participate. And that at the core of God's very being is a delight, a seizing love for all of us and for all the cosmos. Do you think that remembering some of the gifts that emerge from the poetry of Genesis 1 could start to shift the way we picture our maker of heaven and earth? Do you think that remembering these glimpses could make our own faith more expansive, offer some more room for mystery, help loosen our grip on needing to know all the hows so we might be able to rest more deeply in knowing some of the whys? I kind of wish all our kids were still in here so that as families made their way home on this day or as you move from virtual worship to lunch, we could let them know that the one we call the maker of heaven and earth promises to keep at the work of creating until all manners of things are finally made well. That the one we call maker of heaven and earth wants them to be a part of this recreation of the world. That the one we call maker of heaven and earth absolutely delights in them. Not because of what they do, but because of who they are. And that science and faith can be partners in the conversation, not enemies. And they never have to choose one over the other. I believe in God, creator of harmony. Invitational partner, mystery defined by delight and seized by love, the maker of heaven and earth, and it is very good. Amen.